You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms and the new 110 Ultralight. At about six pounds, the 110 Ultralight is designed to combat elevation and the elements while maintaining the performance of a factory blueprinted Savage 110 action. The carbon fiber wrapped stainless steel barrel makes it durable and lightweight. The rifle comes equipped with the Savage AccuFit technology, so that means it's adjustable and it comes in a variety of calibers. The 308, the 270, the 28 Nosler, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 30 out 6 and much more. If you want to find out more information about the 110 Ultralight, visit savagearms.com. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up everybody? Welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Man, we got a kick-ass episode today, and it's not necessarily because today's guest killed a 200-inch buck this year in Illinois. Uh, It's because he is a wildlife artist, and the reason I reached out to him in the first place is because he's a wildlife artist, and I'll be completely honest with you, he is really good at what he does. Um, I think some of his artwork is the best outdoor wildlife-type painting and artwork in the business and um and uh that's really what we talk about today we touch base on his his uh 2020 buck it's 200 inches it's giant we do like a real high level uh conversation about it but a majority of today's episode is about his artwork how we got started um, you know, we talk about how his parents and, and maybe some teachers helped nurture that talent along the way, why he loves hunting and fishing, why he loves uh, painting, all these kind, all these uh, conversations that revolve around wildlife art. And it's a really cool conversation. It's something that we don't typically do throughout the, you know, throughout the, the year is, is talk about the, you know, we have this huge outdoor community. We have this huge industry and when, when i say industry we think a lot about products you know bows arrows broadheads camo tree stands that kind of stuff but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes into that as well and one of those is art right uh ryan kirby's his name and he does um he's had a couple Oh, magazine. I should say a couple. He's had more than a couple magazine covers of his artwork. I think most notably Outdoor Life. He's had a, a couple Outdoor Life episodes and uh, not episodes, I should say, uh, magazine covers, but it's a really good episode. So today we got to do a commercial and that commercial is Wasp Broadheads. Now, here's what I'm going to say about Wasp Broadheads. Wasp, wasp Broadheads are badass that's i mean that is a cool way of saying that they're very destructive and the the reason i I say i use the word destructive is because this year i shot my buck from the ground he was quartering away i hit front side shoulder i hit lung i hit trachea i hit uh jugular 
right? And it was a blood trail that a blind man could have followed. That's how good it was. It was a, I'm not going to say it was a perfect shot because it wasn't. It uh, had, there was some marred, you know, it was marginal at best, not necessarily terrible because I did hit lung and I got the jugular and I got the, the trachea and my deer expired really, really fast. And whenever I go out and I try to kill a deer or any type of animal with, with a, a bow and arrow, my goal is for that deer to expire as fast as possible. And that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a double lung shot or it has to be a heart shot. It has to be a shot in my opinion that kills the animal as fast as possible and that's where in my opinion the ethics comes in to play right the goal is to have that animal expire as quickly as possible so it does not suffer now that doesn't happen every time uh and and how does this relate to uh, wasp right i looked on my wall today and i have including my buck this year i have seven well eight total mounts every single one of those deer have been killed i'm gonna say except one every single one of those deer except one have been killed with a wasp broadhead whether that has been a boss four blade or a jackhammer majority of them have been with a jackhammer that's their mechanical it is just something that i feel confident having on the tip of my arrow the material that is used to make them is badass they function like a you know it's the design the function the material and all that adds up into uh, a seek and destroy product that that i feel confident having on the tip of my arrow leaves great blood trails you know if you shoot anything really uh, in the right spot it's going to leave a good blood trail but uh it's it's the solid build allowed my arrow to go through that front shoulder and get to the lung and get to the parts that are going to make that deer expire really fast and uh, man that's why i love shooting a wasp broadhead and uh, if you want to find out more information about wasp and their full lineup of mechanical and fixed broadheads visit wasparchery.com and i know i have a discount code somewhere here let me pull that up for you real quick where are we at where are we at i probably lost it this is uh this is bad business right here they call that dead air here it is all right wasp you want to get 20 percent off your orders enter the discount code nine fingers 2020 and that's the number nine followed by the word fingers 2020 no spaces and uh you'll get 20 percent off your purchase man and i'll tell you right now they are some of the best built best constructed broadheads on the market now let's get into today's 200 inch deer wildlife artwork episode with ryan kirby in three two one all right on the show with me today uh Someone that I find really interesting, because not because he kills giant bucks, but because he's an artist. And uh, today's guest is Ryan Kirby. Ryan, how you doing, man? Good, man. It's good to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I can't help but just ask you right off the gate, do you still have a smile on your face from the buck that you killed this year? <laughs> yeah. 
I've been uh, been telling buddies that I just carry his rack his rack around like those guys you see at trade shows. Yeah. My, you know, my wife hates it when I bring that thing into bed and tuck it in bed between us and you know tell him good night. He's got a couple kickers that are really uncomfortable. Um, I'll be honest with you, man. I would probably sleep on a couch for a year if I could <laughs> if I could sleep with that rack. You know what I mean? If that yeah. was the buck I ended up killing. Yeah, and um, I, I actually sked, I, I had taken off about two weeks to be up there, um, and I moved my whole office up to my parents' place. So I had my, you know, 27-inch iMac sitting in their living room full of antiques and everything. <laughs> and it was just pretty ironic. But uh, I killed him on, I guess, the third day I was there, the evening. And so, you know, I had a week and a half to still jack around and work and hunt with buddies and shot another doe for the freezer. So I had enough time for the smile to wear off. And now I'm back to working and grinding and being a dad of little kids and all that stuff. So I feel how many kids you got back to the reality. I've got a four year old boy named Rhett and a one year old girl named Brooklyn. Oh boy. So, uh, we're in it, man. Yeah. I feel you, man. My, uh, my kids, I, I, I went, I went to South Dakota for a week, come back. I can, yeah. I feel like I could tell they changed. I went to Michigan for oh, five man. days. You come back and you can, it looks like they changed. And then yep. November uh, comes and I, you know, I head South for however many days for me to kill my Iowa buck. And I come back and I feel like they changed. Now you ask my wife, she's going to give you a different point of view, but it's yeah, crazy yeah. how fast these kids grow these days, man. Oh man. It's nuts. Um, I honestly, Brooklyn's about to walk any day now. And uh, I, I honestly thought I was going to miss her first steps because every day she's standing up and she's grabbing things and doing this. And it's like, wow, they really do change quick. That's a fact, man. All right. So, so real quick, I want to I, I touch on this buck that you, that you killed this year because it is a magnum of magnums. And, yeah. and but I, I also want to say we're not going to, I'm not, gonna get the whole story out of you today what i want to do is i want to tell all of the listeners if you want to hear the full story on this giant buck that you killed go check out the latest land and legacy uh podcast on the sportsman's nation network there is a it's a the full recap did you do a full recap of the property the hunt all that stuff with them yep yep all right cool so that's where you're gonna find the full uh, the full story, but the abbreviated story real quick. What I want to know is, is this a buck that had been on your radar for a handful of years before he, before you ended up shooting him? No. Um, I, I grew up on a, our family farm in Hancock County. Uh, we've got 150 acres now. And, uh, that's in Illinois, right? Been, that's in Illinois. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Um, so, and it, it's always been pretty good, you know, but it hasn't really been great. Um, it's a pretty good section. We've had a few, you know, good bucks killed over the years, but not routine booners or anything like that. Um, I bought uh, another 40 by myself, and then I bought a 40 with a buddy of mine, and that's where Matt and Adam had come in helping me manage those and get on a plan and everything. Um, but I was, I had buddies coming in, uh, we had South winds, which were kind of funky. It was 70 degrees all week. It was an awful warm front. And so I was kind of bouncing around and to answer your question, we, we had this buck move in from November to March the year before, and he held his antlers till mid March. He held them late 
Wow. And he was a big deer. Um, roundabout store, I got, I've got his shed, and his right side scored, I think, 78 inches, somewhere around there. Um, I think he was probably a 170s, and I honestly think he was he was four last year, four and a half. But um, before that, we didn't have any history with him. He just showed up in November, hung around for a while. We didn't see him after that. We didn't have any trail cam pics of him in the fall. Um, a couple neighbors between a half mile and a mile away had pictures of him that fall, but we had no idea he was there. But um, he he completely blew up. I bet he put on at least 30 inches over the year. And uh, we didn't have any trail cam pics of him that fall, so I wasn't even hunting that deer. I didn't even know he was there. I mean, we assumed he was around, yeah. but I didn't know what he was. No, so he was a complete surprise. So he was there, he disappeared for a year, and then he came back this year. Well, he was he was in that section. So my um, from where I killed him, my cousin is about a mile to the southeast. He had pictures of him. And then a neighbor to the west got pictures of him two nights before I killed him. And some guys that hunt to the south, he was, he was kind of running this big drainage. We're right along the Mississippi River. He was running this big drain. But we didn't have any pictures of him as far north as where I killed him. Okay. So we had several cameras out. He just didn't, you know, there was a camera 100 yards from where he was at the night I shot him. Uh, but he, was, he wouldn't have walked by that one. So he just somehow avoided the cameras. Yeah. Well, but, was he chasing a doe when he finally came in or was he solo? He, no, it was it was really warm, and I, I was really busy at work, so I was just kind of punting the morning hunts, and I was going to – I'd drive around the section in the morning, you know, check fields and all that kind of stuff, and then go to work, and then work for five, six hours, and then I would go hunt in the evenings. And that, that night I got in there, I'd only been seeing movement real late, like past half hour, 45 minutes of daylight, and I got into this stand. It's kind of a big teardrop-shaped field. And the stand's in the south part of that teardrop. And there were does on the other side of the field. Um, they had come out early, some does and fawns. And I was just sitting there, and I heard a, a deep, long grunt about 75 yards away to the south in the main block of timber. And it was just a... And I knew it was a buck. Um, had no idea what it was. Couldn't see it. So I ended up trying to call him a little bit. I rattled once for a little bit, got no response. But really, I was just trying to make him think that there was some action up in that bean field. He was kind of down in a ravine behind me because I knew that he could go one of three ways when he decided to come out into a field at dark, and I wanted him to come to my field. So I was just trying to, you know, create a scenario in his head. And again, I'm assuming it's the same buck. It could be a completely different deer. I don't know. But I heard him grunt about 20 minutes later in the same spot and then heard him grunt about right right at prime time in the same spot, and he hadn't moved. And when he did it the last time, I had been grunting a little bit, and I just decided to give him a, a snort wheeze, kind of a Hail Mary right before last light to see what happened, and then I wasn't going to jack with him anymore. And I didn't get an immediate response. But a few minutes after I snort wheezed, I, the woods had gotten really, really just dead calm. And I heard a buck, heard a deer coming up over the ridge. It was walking like a buck, you know, on a mission. I looked, um, could tell it was a buck. But um, the the area we're in is covered in bush honeysuckle. And you've probably got a bunch of that in Iowa, yep. I'm assuming. You guys yep. have that. 
And you know how it is when it gets thick, man. You, those deer can walk right through it. You can't really even hardly see them. Um, so at 40 yards, I got binoculars on his rack, and I could tell he had a big frame. He had big beams and some, some gnarly stuff. Um, and from there, I just put my binoculars down and, and, and focused on the shot. He ended up coming in through that bush honeysuckle. He had to clear a shag bark hickory tree at like 10 yards. And I was, uh, by the time he came around that tree, I was already anchored, trying to ignore his rack and just pick a spot. And I ended up shooting him at 10 yards. Jeez. And he immediately turned and ran, wheeled. I knew he was big, but even then he got back in that honeysuckle and I, I couldn't quite tell what he was. Um, ran probably 30, 40 yards and I heard him crash. And then I slipped down, got my arrow, went around and got my dad, uh, who had hunted the other side of the farm that night. And we went back in and got him, man. And we, we couldn't believe it when we walked up on him. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, it was, we, I'm still kind of speechless even just thinking about it. But, um, when we first started tracking him, um, we didn't find blood immediately. And I'm, I knew he had only run 30 or 40 yards, but still I just wanted to start on blood and get on the right path. We didn't find any blood immediately. And finally I was like, dad, let's just look right here. And he was piled up within 30 yards of where I shot him. Man. So I, I tell you what, man, it's crazy. I mean, in that, in that short brief thing, we could break down so many different things because yeah, I rattled in a 210 inch buck that I shot and didn't recover. I shot him high. Hit, mm-hmm. hit uh, I hit his spine, but not his spinal cord. And yeah. uh, I hit lung, and he he ended up surviving. And the next year, the neighbor killed him. But anyway, it's funny when people talk about calling whitetails, they think they automatically think for an instant response. Like when you rattle, yeah. Just like when a two year old or a three year old runs in and they're all crazy and they're looking for it. That doesn't always happen. Like it can be a delayed response, whether you're grunting or, you yep. know, th- that 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 interest that that buck has on what just happened could, you know, hey, I'm going to finish this scrape. I'm going to munch on some stuff. Then I'm going to come over and investigate. And yep. uh, it's crazy. I, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that's kind of what happened in your case. Yeah, and I I haven't had great success just blind calling. Yeah. I just. I, you know, I, I, I've done okay with it, but not great. I've done very well when I can see the deer and yeah. I can see how they react. I've Absolutely. called in, you know, a couple of deer, nice deer that I've shot um, doing that. And so I'm not a huge fan of, of blind calling a lot. Um, with, with this buck, though, one thing I did fail to mention is uh, when he was grunting back there, I looked down and I did see a doe step out and start drinking out of the creek for a little bit. And I think he might have, you know, been nudging her around, checking her to see if she was in heat. You know, um, I don't really know what was all going on back there. But, again, my whole strategy from the very first was I'm going to just try to make him think that it's going on up here. And eventually he's going to come to this bean field instead of going to the cornfield to the south. Right. Um, and, and one thing that I can tell for a fact is it was getting right at last light when I shot. And there, you know, there's a buffer. The sand's probably 20, 30 yards off the edge of the bean field. And there's kind of a thick buffer there between the edge of the field and, and the stand. And this deer was not going to be on that 
plot in daylight or the the field in daylight. He was just coming up to the edge, and I'm sure that if I sat there and watched him, he would not have gone into that field before daylight. So I think he just wanted to come out. And you know, all that being said, I even if he wanted to come immediately to my calling, and that's assuming it was the same deer, he was not going to come up there until right at dark. Yeah. So. That's crazy. That's uh, that's yeah, abs- congratulations. Yeah, congratulations, man. Yeah, but um, he he ended up scoring two hundred two and five eight, um, which is by far my biggest deer, yeah. and he, his mass is amazing. Um, he's got uh, like, and to show you the jump, um, I did an Instagram story on it earlier. My buddy found the shed from last year. He's got some real distinctive points, so we know it's the deer from last year. But if you looked at it, you'd say there's no way that's one-year growth. He went on his right side, he went from just over 18 inches of mass to over 26 inches of mass. So he, he put on about 16 inches of mass in one year. Man. Um, it's nuts. He, he ate good. <laughs> he did. That's crazy, man. Well, well and my, my buddy Joseph was saying, I never thought about this, but he kept his antlers really late too. I mean, yeah. he, he had his, I think my dad told me March 23rd, he still had antlers. Yeah. So you think about that. He grew that rack in, you know, that amount of time, two months less than most deer are growing a rack. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he was on roids, man. Yeah. He was eating something good. I tell you what, I've, I've had some trail cam pictures in the past of bucks still holding their antlers in late March early April and other yeah. deer in the same picture with their little nubs. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Growing. Yeah. So it's amazing what some of these deer uh, can do in that amount of time. Yeah. So he probably, not only did he have the genetics it looked like, but he also had the, uh, um, the nutrition to hit his peak growth. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yep. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, congratulations on the big buck, and uh, um, I bet you that kind of gets a guy excited not only for this year, right? You just you just harvested one of your you know one of your best deer ever, and I mean, are you thinking about next year already? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. yeah. I've uh, you know I've owned um, a small piece, a small forty acre piece uh, for three years now, two and a half years. And then we just bought this second one, and I'd I'd love to have more um, if we can swing it. But I look forward to working more to to prep than anything. You know, yeah. I mean that's that's the thrill for me, like trying to set a property up and and getting deer to do exactly what you want them to. That's the thrill for me. So I as soon as I killed that deer, I even uh, texted Matt and Adam, and I said, Hey man, is it too too early to or too late to spray bush honeysuckle? <laughs> you know, like can I? What can I do to get ready for next year already? Um, during the so rut. That, that's the thrill for me, man. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, during the rut. I'm that guy. Yeah. The neighbors are looking at me walking around with a backpack sprayer like, who is this idiot? <laughs> he is ruining everything you know? right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's awesome. Like I said, everybody needs to go check out the latest Land and Legacy podcast where they talk about this this uh the land management that you do the the history of this deer the the whole hunt and your strategy and all that stuff but the reason i reached out to you and i'm not sure if i did it before or after you shot this big buck but 
I'm interested in you as the artist. And yeah. a, a lot of people really don't know this. I mean, cause I, I very rarely talk about it, but I'm a huge fan of art and I don't just mean art as, Hey, there's a Larry Zach hanging on the wall. Let's look at this buck making a scrape, but really all types, yeah. all types of art, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, abstract impressionist or, you know, realistic or, or whatever it is. I just, I love looking at art. And, um, so my question, I just kind of want to go all the way back and ask you, ask yeah. you some questions about your youth. And I mean, did you grow up in a hunting family? Where did you grow up at? Uh, or is it something that kind of came on later in your life? Yeah. Well, I, I'm impressed that you like art, man. I, di- I didn't know that about you. I do listen to podcasts a lot. So you're like an onion, you know? <laughs> a lot of layers. you're a Renaissance man. There you go. Um, but man, I, I grew up, um, my dad was a farmer. We farmed corn, soybeans and some wheat, a little bit of livestock, my mom was the postmaster in our hometown, and I just grew up in a real small town, man. Uh, we had 49 people, 49 kids in my graduating class, and, you know, your classic stoplight in the Dairy Queen, Midwest, small town. And, um, you know, it, 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 it came pretty natural to me. You know, it's a God-given gift. Um, I had a great art teacher in high school that taught me a lot of fundamentals, um, you know, about drawing perspective and all that, but it really just, it, it, it came pretty natural to me. I didn't, uh, I didn't grow up in a, in an art family. You know, my yeah. dad wasn't an artist and nobody really taught me to draw. Uh, I just picked it up on my own. And like I said, I had some really good teachers, but really we hunted and fished all the time. Yeah. You know, I was obsessed with fishing when I was a kid. And I, I as I got into hunting, um, my dad and I learned to bow hunt and my brother at the same time because bow hunting wasn't real popular, you know, in the, in the early nineties. Uh, it just, it re- we, we just gun hunted all the time. We did deer drives and all that kind of stuff with, right. you know, smoothbore shotguns and Ithaca 12 gauges and stuff like that. And, you know, I, the, the outdoors was a huge part of my life from early on. And I just, I feel like it's the best way to grow up. I'm so fortunate that, that I was able to grow up like that. We had 120 acres out the back door, you know, we could fish or hunt just about whenever we wanted to. And so I, I had, um, you know, a, a gift and then a passion and they just eventually merged. Uh, I, I won the junior duck stamp contest when I was in high school and that kind of put me on the map with, um, you know, a lot of local people and, and, and I got to make some good connections with, with, professional wildlife artists and I would bail hay and paint people's bird dogs for a summer job. You know, that's <laughs> kind of what I did. So like to get some, a little bit of a Renaissance man like you a little bit, but, um, let me ask you but, a question uh, before we get any further yeah. or further, because let's not kid ourselves when my son or my daughter bring home a p- picture from art class, and we say, oh, my God, that is beautiful. You're such a good artist. And we put it on the fridge. <laughs> yeah. And in about a week, we throw it in the trash, right? I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's nothing that's going to stand out. But was there a time where someone in your family, like you, uh, or like your mom and dad, or an aunt and uncle, or maybe even a teacher, that kind of helped incubate that skill? Because there's there's times where, you know, a, a child can do something really good 
or and then yeah. they 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 nurture that talent a little bit right and and then they yep. focus on it right other th- and then yep. and then there's other times where like i just said it's oh cool you're great you know I, you know but i'm not going to put any i'm not going to start paying for art classes for my kid you know what i mean yeah yeah no that that's a great question and and that's where i was really fortunate to have uh just great parents um and a, and like i said a really great art teacher um it, you know i guess th- there's a certain there's a lot can, that can be learned as an artist. Um, and there's some things that are just a little bit more innate. And I've always been able to understand how things worked, how shapes and shadows and perspective work. That really came natural to me. And then after that, you know, artists pretty much just hand-eye coordination, just making the right marks in the right places. And uh, I, I, I was able to do that well as a, at a young age. And this is a funny story I tell people all the time, but you know, like I said, I went to a real small high school and there wasn't a whole lot of money for art supplies or anything. So they would actually pick, my art teacher would pick three students that got the full set of Prismacolor colored pencils. And then the next tier of talent got less. And then the next year talent got less. And that's just how it was, man, because you know, the school couldn't afford a lot of stuff. I mean, those are the types of things that would be, you'd have a lawsuit on your hands yeah. right now, you know, yeah. it's like total discrimination and stuff. But the, my art teacher really um, identified that in me and other students and, and, and really set us aside and, and help nurture that Yeah. and, uh, and put in some extra time outside of class and, and helped us, you know, after hours, if we wanted to, and, and tried to get us some extra resources at yeah. the same time, my parents did the same thing. My first oil painting was my grandma and grandpa's black lab. And my parents took me to Fort Madison, Iowa, and we bought a little, like, paint kit. I, I mean, I literally, it was a black lab, so I think I had black, white, and red because he had a red collar. Yeah. And, and that was the first painting I ever did. So, um, How old and, were and you? That's pretty significant. Um, man, I want to say I was like 12. Okay. I need to see if I can find a picture of that and send it to you. Um, but it, we didn't, they're just, it, you know, growing up in a small town, there aren't a whole lot of resources available to you. Yep. And there, there wasn't YouTube then, you know, so I, I really uh, relied on those people to teach me the fundamentals and, and uh, you know, help, help me springboard um, yeah. to the next level. So at some, um, at some point though, right? Like the, the grasshopper, it turns into the teacher and all of a sudden there is a level that your teachers or your parents can no longer help you. Right. Because you have surpassed anything that they can provide you. Yeah. Was there a time like that where you ended up searching out for, you know, for more or more advice, different people, or did you just say, okay, it's on me now? Um, a little of both. Um, when I was, uh, let's see, junior in high school is when I won the national duck stamp contest. And it's a funny story there too. I was, you know, all this art stuff is going on, but I'm just like an average, you know, country high school kid, you know, like I just want to deer hunt. I want to play sports. I want to do this and do that. Um, the deadline for the duck stamp entry was coming up and I decided that I wanted to, uh, paint my first 
my, my next entry, and I never painted a full painting before. I'd always done colored pencil drawings. It actually broke my wrist at a at a basketball game, and I was in a cast for five weeks. And I got the cast off on Friday, and the submission had to be done by, like, the next Tuesday. So I basically locked myself in my room the whole time for over a weekend and painted that entry. Um, and it ended up going on to win. And that, so that was a little bit more of a time where I put it on myself, like, hey, man, you got to step up and get this done no matter what. Like, no excuses. Yeah. Um, at, the, at the same time, I was getting a few lessons um, from some people locally. But, again, it's a small town, so look, there's not a, lot, a whole lot of resources um, that, that you can really tap into. Where I really found that was I, I ended up going to college and getting a, a degree in graphic design and multimedia. And then I took a job at the National Wild Turkey Federation in South Carolina. That was in uh, about 15, 16 years ago in 2004, 2005. And I actually answered a, um, uh, a classified ad in the back of Turkey Call magazine back in the day that they were looking for a designer and an illustrator. And I moved down there. And, you know, a lot of people are – you've been to Turkey Federation banquets and Ducks Unlimited banquets and stuff like that. What those programs do is they take submissions from artists all over the country, and then they select the, you know, five to ten paintings that they think that they can sell well at their banquets to raise money. And they sign a, a, an agreement with that artist, and they just pay them royalties for those uh, prints to make prints of their work. But every one of those is hand-signed and numbered by the artist. And so what the Turkey Federation was doing is they were um, – they, they'd have the artist come in to headquarters and sign prints for like two or three days. They just signed prints the whole time. And what I would do is go chum it up with those guys, and they're all really cool, really friendly and I would just ask for advice and, you know, I'd even bring my work in. So I'm, you know, 22, three, four at the time. And I would paint nights and weekends, you know, and then work my full-time job. And I would come in and ask those guys for advice, ask them to critique my work, tell me what I can do better. And, and when I started to tap into those guys, that, that was like the next level of talent that, um, that 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 helped me to get even further you okay. know i mean there's there's only so much critique my you know my high school art teacher can do but you put that in front of a, a guy that's painted professionally for 30 years um they they can really help you and really rip it up i told him hey man like if i want to compliment i'll show this to my mom like i want you right. to tell me right what i did wrong in this <laughs> and, and tell me how can i i can improve yeah so, so. just from a from a process or like I'm looking at some of the pictures on your website and yeah. my question to you is, do you paint off of a picture or do you paint out of your mind or how, how do you, how do you know what to paint? How do you know like the positions that these animals are going to be in and all that stuff? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's one I get a lot. Um, it usually happens one of two ways. Uh, I, there's a lot of times I, I, I almost always work from photographs, from photographs, whether that is a, um, a, a freelance wildlife photographer that I work with and get their reference photo from them. And most of the time I, I pay for that stuff. I either get it from them 
and paint the the animal. So that's where like a pose inspires something. Like if you right. see scrape line, which is a white tail buck making a scrape, that's one of those where the pose inspired the painting. A lot of times when I do a turkey scene, though, uh, I'll be walking around, walking around the woods, moving between a setup, and you'll see a scene that that, and you've seen it before in the woods. You're like, God, that's just like a painting, you know? Or I can just see a big buck right over there with the sun glimmering off his rack. That happens too, and I always have a camera with me, or even an iPhone these days can take a good enough pick, and I'll I'll take. Uh, photos when I'm on a hunt and bring those back to my studio and then I'll look for reference photography or um you know poses to put the animal in that scene versus painting the pose but as I've gotten older you know one of the things that I've always done is I've only painted animals that I've hunted before myself because you know animals take bad photos just like people do you know, you'll see a you'll see a buck in a scrape, and it's it's a photo. It came from reality, but the foot positioning is off, or it just doesn't quite look right. And a, a diehard hunter can tell that. And you've got to know what to look for there. And so I take I take liberty with photographs all the time. You know, if there's if if the pose just isn't quite natural, um, and I know it's not quite right, I'll fix that myself or move a leg here or there. Um, a lot of the times the backgrounds I'll, I'll make them up as I go. And that just really comes with experience, yeah. you know, experience in the woods. And you just have a gut feeling that ah, just didn't, this isn't quite natural. I'm going to paint it this way because this is how I know it feels when I'm in the woods. Yeah. So, so, so a little bit of both. So you, you get inspired by these pictures and then you, that's kind of like the foundation. And then you just go from there. Yeah, to the finished yeah. product. Okay, it, All right. it, it it almost never happens when I just make up a scene totally on the fly. Yeah, um, there are a lot of times where I have a scene in my head or something I want to convey, and I've got to find reference for it. Or what happens a lot of times is I'll do kind of a Frankenstein image of, you know, take the head of one deer and the the body of another and the back leg from another deer and work them together. And then bring all that um, together in my studio. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and, I, and I'll tell you, I'm looking through your your uh, white-tailed deer original oil paintings. Called the one that stands out the most is Autumn Reflections. And yeah, most most outdoor or wildlife, um, especially for deer, the <laughs> they they paint a picture or do their artwork almost all the same like the body language is of a deer at full attention ears forward looking at whatever right or i just even those that i see at uh there's one for some reason that sticks out it's called like late night mapling and it's uh, a buck in a doe she's got her head down and he's got his head up looking at the camera and it's just like this average position and yeah what stands out to me in this autumn reflections episode is the front doe and her position of her leg up, her nose in the air, the air, the one ear forward, one ear back. And she's just like, it's like she's scent checking where she's going to go. And the cool thing about that is, is I can relate to that because I saw deer do that 
this yeah. this fall. And so it's just it's just like my God, that's that is a pose of what a like that's a detailed pose of what a white-tailed doe would do before she decides to head up the ridge and go to a cornfield. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. So yeah, and that's um, you know a lot of that stems from the fact that that I see those things the same as you, yeah. and 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 that's that's why I've, I I just kind of set that rule for myself a long time ago that I wouldn't paint anything that I've never hunted before because yeah. you really do I just want things to be authentic and 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 resonate with people, um, and you know my my experiences outdoors just naturally translate into into my art. Yeah. So. So what would you call your style of uh, painting? Because I can look at it and I look, it's, it's not like the, the shadowing is detailed, right? It, it yeah. looks like a buck, but it's not like picture detailed, like some paintings are, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's not, I don't know, it's not detailed, but the, the complete image is detailed, if that makes sense. Yeah. What what's yeah. that? Is there a know, process man. or something like that called? No, I've never really thought about that, and honestly, nobody's ever asked me that. Um, but I've always just wanted to, uh, you know, when I got my start, I was doing duck stamps, yeah, and those things are massively detailed. Yeah. I mean, the you know the story I always tell people is there were years ago. Um, they they do the judging of the federal contest in Washington D.C. And I was there for the judging of it when, when I was in high school because I won the duck stamp contest and they gave me and my whole family an all-expense-paid trip to D.C. And I got to meet some of the judges and, and talk to them. And there was one story a long time ago where they were in a tiebreaker and they couldn't figure out who was going to be the winner, so they started counting feathers. And one of the guys had painted – one of the wings of the ducks with one extra primary wing feather. And so they disqualified him. And so that, that's the kind of, they didn't disqualify him, but they named the other guy, the winner. Gotcha. Um, and that's the level of detail that some of those duck stamps got into. And, and that's how I, that's always what I thought the goal was to make it as realistic as possible. But I started, um, I got to become buddies with a guy named Bruce Miller from Minnesota. And he's a, he's a phenomenal artist great guy um and i just really admired his style and one of the things that i always that i always uh looked at these these older guys is they would start out detailed a lot of them would get their success in the duck stamp program and they would start out really detailed in their work and then as they got older they would loosen up you know they would start to um they would start to leave out some details that weren't vital to the to the the, the painting you know yeah um you you can get uh the the details and the posture just right on a buck and you can let some of those background details fade yeah. and it actually enhances the piece to me instead of takes away from it and i started i, I kind of looked at it as a metaphor for life to go deep real quick you know as you get older you tend to focus on the details that matter and then you let the other crap go Right, And I, I felt like a lot of these guys, as I was watching them mature in their careers, they were doing that with their work. And I started to think, man, I wonder if I could get a head start on that and paint that way and learn th- some of the things that these guys have learned over 30 years of painting. If I can condense that and try to go there a little bit earlier myself. 
Yeah. And I'm just like anybody, man. I'm my own worst critic, and I'm a long ways there. But I have pushed, and I feel like that helped me a lot to get better, um, to, to try to, to get there a little bit quicker, you know, to right. experiment with some some looser brushwork, uh, to enjoy it a little bit more, um, and to not always feel like I have to have to hammer out every feather, every detail, everything exact, you know. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, like, I'm not, I, I guess I'm not a connoisseur. Like, I, I don't follow a ton of wildlife artists. But yeah. I'm sure if, I mean, Larry Zach, that's who I, like, that was the first outdoor artist I really became familiar with because he was on magazine covers. He lived in Iowa. You know, he was at the, oh he's, yeah, he's always at the Iowa trade shows. He's got some really popular pieces um, yep. that have, you know, graced the cover of, you know, the uh, Iowa outdoors magazines and stuff like that. And you can look at yep. his, you can look at his artwork and say, that's a Larry Zach. Right. Yep. And, exactly. and I think, I think like you're well on your way to people looking at your artwork and going, dude, that's a, that's a Ryan Kirby. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that yeah. it's that noticeable. I hope so, man. And Larry, I've never met Larry, but I remember um, when I was in like middle school, I can't even remember where we were at. We were at a Deer Classic or something, and I saw a bunch of note cards with the old Rivals series that oh, had yeah. John Deere and Case. Man, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Yep. And uh, I ended up buying some of those. And, and watching guys like him, Al Agnew's another one that has a lot of Bass Pro stuff. Um, he has a ton of brass pro covers, you know, the fish jumping out of the water and, yep. and all that. And, you know, back when I was a little kid, they still did quite a few painted outdoor life covers and field and stream and stuff because photography just wasn't quite where it, it, it is now. And, uh, I just remember looking at those like, man, I want to, I want to be a wildlife artist one day, yeah. you know? And then, then I, I, you know, went to college and got a degree in graphic design and went a little bit more realistic route. I ended up doing, and I still do a lot of uh, marketing and branding work for companies in the outdoor industry, but it's, it's weird to sit back and think that I'm 38 years old right now and I'm a wildlife artist, Yeah, you know, and it's just like, wasn't the path I thought I would take to get there, but I'm here. So, right. Right. It's just cool to look back on that. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about, I mean, cause you do the, you do the artwork, right? Which is, yeah. it, which some people would call a painting, but you also do these other things. I, I don't know what you call them, but it's like, it's like a graph, not a graph, but a here is all the variety of, of ducks in this flyway or the Atlantic flyway, and it, then it has a list of all of the ducks. What what do you call those? Well, those those were just a series of paper prints. I started working with a company that does licensing. And we were at a, a, a big home decor show in High Point, North Carolina, and we were walking around, and and uh, I, I was getting the tour of their company and the products they make and all this kind of stuff. And I remember seeing it was a it was a chart of I think it was butterflies, like the butterflies of North America or whatever. And I got to thinking, I was like, man, it'd be super cool to do the the, the waterfowl of North America in a similar feel um and it's a really and i ended up designing it in a, a really vintage um 
you know, almost a monotone, monochromatic sepia tone, kind of a vintage look. And I did the whole series of, of waterfowl. And I mean, man, I, I broke it up. I tried to do about three a day. And, and even then there's like 90 sketches on that thing, you know, so it took a long time. Right before we got to press, I was like, man, I had a, a, a guy that was working for me at the time um, in like a marketing role. And I was like, man, I, I think we could, I think we could do a deer, like a, a, a deer aging chart, like a print type deal. And so I really thought the waterfowl was going to be the popular one, but we did the uh, growth maturity, the whitetail buck. And I worked with, uh, with Kip Adams and yep. Matt Ross yep. from uh, QDMA. God, those guys know their stuff, man. They're amazing. And they really, um, they really helped me with a lot of facts and figures. Um, I sketched out all the deer, all the parts, you know, and, and, and we designed it in a way that's just kind of a cool, timeless piece for the, the deer hunter. And that one has taken off. That's been the most popular thing I've ever done. We're already on our third reprint of it. And it's been a really, really great piece but, um, you know, to answer your question, it was just uh, we wanted to create a, a, a different type of product, a different type of print for the diehard hunter. Yeah. And as an artist, I've always felt like um, my goal is to bring the outdoors indoors. So yeah. to take the things that we're passionate about and the things that we love and bring those into the home in a way that inspires and, and you know, creates a culture around hunt camp and your home decor and I just started to think over the past couple of years, like that doesn't necessarily have to be a painting, you know, that doesn't have to be an original oil painting over the mantle or a print that's double matted and framed under glass. Like that can be anything, you know, yeah. that could be any number of things. And I feel like the, the series that we just wrapped up has been a really kind of an eye opening thing for me about how it, it's been really well received and people really appreciate a different look. Right. And what's cool about that, and for some reason, I don't know why this, it reminds me of this, but, um, so there was, uh, I think his name's Autobahn. I think if, um, uh, yeah. back in the day, this James dude, Audubon. yeah. So yeah. he ends up going to out West, right. And he, he sketches all these different birds, I believe, or animals. And then he brings it back and he shares this with all the people in, you know, the East coast of the United States that had never been out West before. And for some reason, those, those charts or whatever you call them, these prints, the growth and maturity of a whitetail buck look like a scientific document that they hand people who are doing research. You know, it's like, here's this, this is what this is all about. And it's just like all these statistics and facts and, and a a person who has never seen a whitetail deer could actually look at it and learn something from it. Yeah. So, yeah. And and the cool thing too is with art is, you know, I've seen some of these these aging charts, and and that's the big thing now with with QDM and 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 everything that the direction we've gone with deer hunting is aging deer and taking a mature animal. And I've seen them out there, but the hard thing about doing them with photos, which is the ones that I've seen, is you can never get an apples to apples comparison of the same deer in the same pose. And the beauty of what you can do with art is I can sketch the, the, the deer in the same pose. 
And so, you know, his tarsal gland shows apples to apples, one through six, you know, the back and the belly and the rack and all that kind of stuff. And that, that was one of the really cool things that we were able to pull off with that piece is, is to really, really get into, you know, what the, what a four and a halfer looks like, you know, and obviously they all change animal to animal, but but for the most part, we're not trying to take a photo and pull it off as a four and a halfer. But this is really what they look like, and this is how they act, and this is how they behave. And there's some cool, um, you know, behavioral things that that the guys at QDMA helped me a lot with. Um, the rut activity, uh, things like that, that I didn't know, you know, and I I felt like I'd researched it pretty thoroughly. So yeah. those guys are real sharp. All right, so. What is the hardest animal to to paint? Ooh, um, man, turkey's gonna be a grind because you, there's you know with with hide and hair, you can really get away with abstracting that or painting that with pretty broad brush brush strokes. Right. But there's no way to do that with a turkey, man. You just got to no. dive in and paint pretty much every feather. Um, and the tail fan, you know, that's tough with the barring. So I paint quite a few turkeys and I really enjoy them. Um, I'm really passionate about turkey hunting. And so I feel like that shines through in my work, but, uh, they're tough to paint, man. They're a grind. Yeah. But one of the things, you know, you were talking about Audubon. One of my favorite artists is Carl Rungius and they used to do the same thing with him before photography that you know museums would send him to alberta to you know kill a moose and paint it and one of the hardest things as an artist is to be able to put a foot on the ground of an animal so it's easy to float them in grass you know but when you have to put that foot on the ground and show weight and show that that's a that's a hard thing to do man so deer legs can be pretty tough yeah uh, what's your favorite to paint? I really like elk. Um, you know, they, they lend themselves to really cool scenery, really cool. Um, uh, a, a lot of times what you have to do when you paint a painting is I have to take a micro scene. So I can't paint a huge panoramic vista. Otherwise the elk would be the size of a quarter in it, you know? Right. So you have to pick a smaller scene that tells a bigger story. And I've found that elk lend themselves to some really cool poses. Um, their anatomy is awesome. They're big. They live in big country. A lot of unique stuff there. So I, I think elk are probably the most fun. Right. Um, now, you've been on the cover of Outdoor Life how many times now? Uh, six. Six. So yeah. is this something that they commission you to do? Or do, or do you paint a picture and then you yeah. give it, send it to them and then you go, Hey, well, Hey, I got this. If you want to use it, you can use it. No, it was, man, that's a, that's a, a big project. I was actually at shot show at a cocktail hour actually. And I, I ran into Andrew McKean, who was the editor at the time. And we were just kind of BSing about hunting and this and that and the other. And he asked me what I did and I ha- told him I was an artist and, and I had done some illustration for the, for Bonnie air for field and stream and outdoor life a few times. And I started showing him some of my artwork, my paintings. I had them on an iPad <clears throat> and he said, man, it's, it's really funny timing. We were just talking about bringing art back to the cover. It's kind of a retro deal. So we, you know, swapped contact info and followed up later. 
and the way that, the way that those work is they have the the theme of the issue baked before we ever start talking about it and we'll go back and forth on uh like a pose they may tell me here's what we're looking for it's the rut issue we want a white tail we want these poses and then i'll pitch them on six or seven different poses and we'll kind of go back and forth you know outline a few things and they will actually know what the cover looks like before i ever paint it so i'll mock it up with photography before i ever paint anything and uh by the time i i set my canvas on the easel they're already writing cut lines and getting the thing baked and then i just execute the painting take a good digital high-res photo of it and then tweak it and then send them the digital file in new york wow that's so, pretty awesome man it's pretty wild man it's a pretty cool collaborative process and those those guys are really sharp yeah so well their designers are very good just to just to not only you know it's it's one thing for somebody to be on the cover let's let's just say a magazine approaches me and say hey dan we would like to do we would like to do uh, a story about you would you want to be on our cover issue okay cool whatever another another article yeah. of another person but there's something about having your artwork on the front it just seems like it's a whole different different level of i don't know an accomplishment if that makes sense yeah it's, it's an honor for sure um and it's cool. You just the one thing that I've always felt about working with them is, as a team together, we want to make a cool product. Like it's not about me getting a piece of art on the cover. It's like me working with them to create a cool cover. You know, something that that entertains people and they uh, they really want to look at. So. Yeah. I think we should pitch them on a painting of you on the cover. <laughs> uh, and it would just be an actual picture of Yukon Cornelius. <laughs> I don't do Titanic style though, so don't ask, man. No, do you know who Yukon do you know who, camo and everything? Do you know who Yukon Cornelius is? <laughs> no. He is everybody <laughs> says I look like this car, this character from the Chris, like the Christmas cartoon where Rudolph has to go out into the wilderness, like into this blizzard and, and find his friends. <laughs> and he, he about. meets this fat red bearded stocking cap dude's got two pistols. <laughs> so when you get the opportunity, Google Yukon Cornelius and everybody, everybody says, I look like that dude. <laughs> That's awesome. So, all right. Um, we're going to wind it down here. So if anybody wants to check out your artwork or, you know, I don't know, I guess before we, we do that, do you take requests? I mean, if someone, if someone goes, Hey man, I want you to paint this picture for me. Will you do that? Yeah, no, not right now. Not right now. I haven't done requests and you call them commissions in the art yeah. world. I just, I haven't done it for about a year. Um, I actually just wrapped up, uh, Carson Wentz's dogs. Um, He's he's a he's a diehard hunter, the quarterback for the Eagles. Yep. Um, I wrapped up his dogs, and I really just haven't taken them on in a year because I'm so busy as is. Um, so the answer is no. But I get asked a lot. Man. Yeah. Hey. A lot of trucks. If pictures. that money's right, though, right? If that money's right, I I take it you'll do just about anything. Eh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. So if any but, if anybody wants to find out more information about your painting or take a look at your galleries, where should we send them? 
Uh, RyanKirbyArt.com is my website. And then most of my good stuff is on Instagram, at RyanKirbyArt. Um, I'm just partial to Instagram. Sounds good. So. Sounds good. Well, hey, man, congratulations on the giant buck. And uh, thanks for taking time out of your day to hop on and chat with us. Hey, man, I appreciate it. I've listened for a long time, so it's good to be good to be on with you and kind of meet you through the podcast. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Huge shout out to Ryan for taking time out of his day to hop on and, and BS with us a little bit. Huge shout out to all of the partners of the Nine Finger Chronicles. The Average Conservationist, Vortex Optics, Ozonix, Wasp, and Lone Wolf Tree Stands. Man, please go out and support those companies because not only do they make kick-ass products, but they're companies who participate in the hunting community. And uh, that's something that... Uh, I really admire about them. So um, go and support them. They support me. And then I get, get to continue to make this kick-ass content for you guys. Uh, other than that, man, please subscribe to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Please subscribe to the Sportsman's Nation RSS feeds and podcasts there. And, uh, man, the season's not over. A lot of rut left. So I say that with there being like a, a week left right? There's still running activity that goes all the way up until Thanksgiving, man. So there is uh, quite a lot of time, uh, depending on where you're at, uh, to go out and get the job done. So good luck, be safe, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm